Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men... How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts Hey, I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And you're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist. A podcast for human Venn diagrams. Coming at you every single Monday. And hosted by us. Today we're talking with Leah Gilliam, the VP of Strategy and Innovation at Girls Who Code. Leah started out as an artist and filmmaker and academic natch before shifting over to game design and STEM education. Mm -hmm. She has discovered and fully embraced a fascinating way to incorporate all of her interests as a creative and a technologist into a role of one of the leading Girls in Code non-for-profits. We discuss Leah's commitment to staying close to the things that she finds interesting 
interesting. How to narrate your own human Venn diagram story in a way that gets you hired. And Leah shares with us the highly valuable skill that she didn't even realize she had as a creative. Plus, we recap our recent escapades, including Kate's new video project and my trip to Washington, D.C. to be part of the Women's March, which explains my scratchy voice today. Totally. It doesn't explain mine, but mine is there too. (laughs) (laughs) So much to squeeze into one episode. So let's just get started. Yes? Yes. (laughs) Hey, Christina. Hey, Kate. How are you feeling? (laughs) How does it sound? <laughs> you know, I'm going to I'm going to stick with my little touch of B Arthur. I love it. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> I, you know, as one tall lady to another, I respect quite a bit uh oh, B Arthur's career, so I, just, I will take it. Yes. Uh, how are you feeling? I'm feeling okay. I'm in the studio with my tissue box, my half-eaten Ricola open on a wrapper next to me. I was going to say, don't, don't pretend you're in good health. I know the truth. <laughs> no, I know. I think that you are sort of at the beginning and I am at the end. We're on both sides of the bell curve oh, right now. Please don't say that. I no, have to hop I should say that. cross-country tomorrow. <laughs> I know. Do you have things that you're going to do or take before your flight to be okay? I mean, you know, in the age of like trying to avoid antibiotics at the you know last resort oh, no. because we're all going to be immune to them soon. Ugh. At this point, it's like all the nose saline and yes, eye drops and Dayquil, Nyquil, all the things. All of it. It's, it's the self medication brigade. Well, I am a, a back on Sudafed. If you don't remember, I was also not feeling well over New Year's, so this is the first for me oh, twice right. in one month. But I took Sudafed at that time and I was like, Sudafed is better than coffee. And Ross was like, Kate, don't say that with as much enthusiasm as you just did. (laughs) Anyway, back on Sudafed, hoping it's going to carry me through. But Christina, I think you have a really good reason for being under the weather. You had a big weekend. If anyone who follows you on social media at CMWALA knows, you were in DC at the Women's March this weekend. I was. Pray I went tell. down there with Chaz yeah. and uh, a couple of his friends, and like everyone I knew was down there. Totally. But it was Me so too. big, and it was so vibrant and bustling and overwhelming. I didn't. I literally didn't see a single person I knew, and I knew hundreds of people there. Yeah, like I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I know a lot of people <laughs> who are politically active. And based on my my social feeds, like everyone I knew was there, and yet I didn't see a single person. It was really? insane. We wow. drove down Friday night. It was like eight hours in the car. For those who have not driven from New York to D.C., that's a very long time. Yeah. We got there. We managed to just walk everything on foot. There was no dealing with the metro, which right. is cray mm-hmm. uh, when you've lines. got crowds of like a million people. And it was just I've, – I've honestly – I've been to a lot of political things. I've been to protests. And this was the first time that I really kind of like felt that – I don't know, that like secret spark that was like – Holy crap, we're we're marching down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the White House chanting this is what democracy looks like and it does, dude. This is what <laughs> democracy looks like. So, that was just really like exciting and it was exciting to see a lot of first-time protesters and people who are getting involved in a meaningful way. Mm. And it was just really reassuring because I know you've been probably paying attention. I'm sure many of our listeners have been that like there have been a couple of really major both legislative uh, decisions, executive orders, and hints toward 
decisions and orders that are going to hurt things that we care about at the limit does not exist. In addition to like women uh, and (laughs) women's rights, there are things like cutting the funding for the national endowment for the arts as part of, you know, an attempt to cut federal funding uh, holistically, except the federal funding for the national endowment of the arts is a tiny little drop. It's like 0.003% of the federal budget. It's so small, $148 million. It's less Mm. than the cost of inauguration. Mm. So it doesn't meaningfully contribute toward balancing the budget, but it does meaningfully contribute toward a lot of small arts organizations that depend on that funding. Mm -hmm. Um, There's been a lot of questions about what is a fact, (laughs) which seems amazing, but there's been questions around what constitutes a fact versus not, um, which Mm -hmm. matters, I mean, in general, but like specifically towards science and, and research and, you know, laying down a body of knowledge, it matters that there are things that are facts Mm -hmm. and that are knowable and that there are things that are not facts, which are called opinions Um, (laughs) or, or, you know, theories or, or things that have yet to be proven to be facts. Right. And, you know, I think it's a tough um, line, I think, for us to navigate, and we're going to do our best mm-hmm. on the show because I know a lot of our listeners specifically you know, reached out to us during the election and, and thanked us for being a respite from all of the political talk. Yeah. We also know that we have listeners globally. You know, you're not just uh, in the United States listening to us. Totally. Um, but at the same time, when things that we care about are at risk – I feel like it's completely ridiculous for us to not discuss them. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that we can uh, help you not only know what's going on in these areas that we care about, education, self-employment, all of the implications of losing the ACA on self-employment, we're going to let you know some quick ways to get involved. We don't believe in, in being scared or complaining. We believe in action. And I think our last guest – Carolyn Kirchow, uh, our guests from earlier, Emily Barnes, both talked about ways that all of us can get involved, whether it's calling your elected official, running for office yourself, or looking for ways like Carolyn did to be a, a state science advisor, contributing mm-hmm. uh, you know, actual knowledge that, that she brings in, a, in a, an area that you know, really relies on having experts at the table. So to that extent, I, I think... Everyone should be calling their representatives, uh, their elected officials um, every day. And the things that really matter, like the National Endowment of the Arts, like the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos nominee, call them and let them know what you think about that. And maybe uh, these tiny little you know, pebbles all will add up to a really big boulder that can make a difference. Absolutely. You know, we always hope to empower our listeners and to give you guys new insights about, you know, what you might be able to do that you didn't think you could do before. And we Mm -hmm. always hope to continue to do that. And I am totally a firm believer, and I know you are too, Christina, in every little step that you want to take towards something that you believe in does matter. And every little whisper in your head that's telling you, go there, even though it seems scary, or it seems uncharted, or it seems confusing, just keep taking those little steps there. They really will add up. Absolutely. You, You have to believe that a lot of small actions can add up to a big action. I mean, that's the entire basis of democracy. So having that personal responsibility to show up and actually raise your hand and protect things that matter to you, I think is something that we all kind of knew we've learned at school. It's part of what voting means, but I think now more than ever we realize it's on us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, 
Jay, other than being sick all weekend, um, <laughs> what have you been up to recently? So, I know you've got a, an exciting new project to tell us about. I do. I was sick this weekend, like really sick. And so much so that, you know, the way that I was supporting was by just like copiously liking things and cheering <laughs> people on through the interwebs and my name was on a sign and things like that. But while I was at home in bed, you know, my body is so smart. It always sort of knows when I need to just kind of crash and, you know, get off the treadmill for a minute. And I felt like mm -hmm. this was one of those times. So I have had this project that has been in my brain for a really long time. Listeners might remember me saying that I started to sort of have voices in my head because it was talking to me so much. <laughs> um, so I am working that wasn't on the <laughs> a little column A, little column B. But anyway, so I am working on a video called called Math Brain. And the way I describe it is that it's the angry little sister of how I do math. And if uh, you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll remember that two years ago, I released How I Do Math on Pi Day, which is how I got to meet Christina. And How I Do Math sought to open the conversation about the unique ways in which women of all ages learn. It was very journalistic in its style. This is totally different than that. Um, but what I can say is that it's just something that's really close to my heart. And it's certainly of the cause. It's a, it's a piece of art. You know, I'm going back to what can you make? What can you do to feel like you are contributing to what you believe in that I have really wanted to make for a really long time. It's really in the spirit of the original spirit of 11 Bettys. And it's something that I've put off for a while because it scared me. I think like the idea has been really strong in my brain, but because of that, it's almost felt like a, just a big mountain to climb. And it's just mm. been really easy for me to push it off and push it off. I saw a friend of mine last week and I was like, I don't know why I'm just so freaked out about this. She's like, Kate, I think it's because you think it's a good idea. Like you're into it. You <laughs> like it, you know? And mm -hmm. so like lying in bed with nothing else to do except to like face that inner voice. I was like, you know what, for better, or for worse, I'm just going to finish writing this thing. And so I did. And it felt so good to, to really get a first draft out. I announced on my social media uh, channels a, a week or so ago that I'm making it. And that's sort of what I do. You know, when I am working on a project that really scares me, I will sort of just get all the pieces in place often before I finished writing the script, just because I know that with the accountability and building in ways that I can't look back or walk backwards, that I'll do it. So that's what this has been. And I was happy to contribute to my part of the ladies cause this weekend and working on this project. And I'm excited to share it in a, in a month, I guess. No, a couple months. I was about to ask when we were going to get to see uh, a snippet of it, but it sounds like you're going to hold fast to this uh, this Pi Day release. Do I get a, a Do I get a sneak preview as your co-host? Oh my gosh, absolutely, yes. Okay, Whew. I don't think I can wait two weeks. <laughs> absolutely, as soon as there are things to share, trust uh, that I will share them. So exciting. Okay, we've got a lot to get to, so we just need to like skip the article thing and go straight to our guest. We are joined today by Leah Gilliam, Vice President of Innovation and Strategy at Girls Who Code. Yes, we are so psyched. Let's kick it off with Leah. Hey, Leah. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you. 
So we have been big fans of Girls Who Code since the beginning. Absolutely. Um, you might know of Bridge Up STEM and our work at the museum. We have been obviously uh, very excited about um, what Rushma started many years ago, but what has really grown beyond just New York into this national movement, which is so exciting. Um, and we'd love to start there with you. You are the Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at Girls Who Code. What does that mean exactly? What do you do for them? And where is Girls Who Code currently? What what are they building uh, nationally? Sure. So VP of Strategy and Innovation basically means that I am helping Girls Who Code think about the new products they create and how we can really impact this goal of closing the gender gap in technology, not just through educational programs, but also, you know, through developing apps and really thinking um, about technical and technological solutions. So it's been um, five years now for Girls Who Code. We're five years strong. And That's amazing. I just, wow. I just celebrated my one-year anniversary. So, oh, um, congratulations. Really, um, thank you. I'm glad to be here and there and uh, really enjoying the work. So That's when it started, cool. it was um, summer intensives for girls in 11th and 12th grade. Is that right? Exactly. That's exactly where we started with our summer immersion program in 2012 with one program in a conference room in New York City with <laughs> AppNexus, mm -hmm. uh, where we still have our offices today. And then it really just began to grow significantly from then on. And what's really interesting is that we have two different programs. We have both programs are free. The Summer Immersion Program, which is a seven-week deep dive into computer science and computational thinking. It happens in cities across the country. For the past five years, it's really um, been growing. We, you know, we anticipate having 73 individual classrooms this summer wow. um, where girls will be, you know, kind of getting the best from Girls Who Code. So we like really like to focus on, on having girls think about a community, having them think about their future careers, and then also really thinking about their capabilities as computer scientists, or maybe as people who just go into technology or something completely different, but use the education that they've sort of gained with us, you know, along the way. Mm -hmm. And our second program is an after-school clubs program, which has a bit more of a kind of organic grassroots, you know, kind of origin story, mm -hmm. where after seeding and embedding these workshops within in tech companies, financial companies, university campuses, people were really asking, how do we bring Girls Who Code to our neighborhood? How do we help mm -hmm. girls who are all over the country? And that's how our, our after school clubs program really started. So we're now in 50 states plus you know, U.S. territories. This is a program that's really growing exponentially. We have about 800 plus clubs um, that that's are amazing. ready to wow. that are ready to rock and and launch this year. It's really been a great you know a great year coming to Girls Who Code and and getting to understand more about the programs and then really you know being able to think about you know issues of equity and diversity and inclusion you know specifically as an innovation problem, which is one of the really kind of unique you know pieces of my of my work here is being able to mm -hmm. think about how you design hmm. solutions um, and how you respond to the kind of data and research that we're seeing coming out of our programs. 
That's very cool. Do you feel like now, having been at Girls Who Code for a year, are you hitting a kind of stride? Did it take some time to really get downloaded and everything that's going on? No, that's exactly it. I was talking to someone today about how long it takes to kind of get your bearings somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really do think there's something about that kind of year mark where you can kind of look back and see where you've been. You have been with the organization um, and, you know, the organizational culture and community for a while. And you've sort of seen almost, you know, kind of a full cycle, particularly with educational organizations, Mm -hmm. you know, and Girls Who Code, Mm -hmm. our founder and CEO has this political background. So it's somewhere Mm -hmm. between like a tech startup and like a political campaign. (laughs) I Um, saw her. I saw her this weekend at the Women's March on Washington. She spoke there. Yeah, she's amazing. She's really inspiring. She convinces (laughs) us, you know, if you if you weren't uh, on the Girls Who Code boat before you speak with her, then you pretty you're pretty squarely on it uh, by the time you're done. (laughs) Well, that's so cool, Leah. It's so awesome to hear obviously everything about Girls Who Code and also the intersection that it is. You certainly are that as well. And you haven't always been in the coding and STEM education world. Your undergraduate degree was from Brown in modern culture and media, followed by an MFA in film studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. What did you think you wanted to be when you were in college? And, And how did that curiosity lead you to getting an MFA in film? I think that what I wanted to be in college um, was pretty TBD. I knew what I was interested in, um, and I knew um, what fascinated me, and I had and really have super strong role models that have just kind of given me this this idea, which is to stay engaged Mm. with things that you're curious about and fascinated with just to sort of stay interested and interesting and the rest will come hell or high water will come in some way (laughs) so I always knew that I was interested in technology and machines and like how things worked I grew up in the art world my dad's an artist and a painter um, and I was really aware of the fact that that was kind of my inclination like Hmm. making things create you know creative expression but I had absolutely like no hand skills I could not draw I could not really paint so I was always sort of thinking like okay how do you express yourself and you know in other ways right which could have led me anywhere when you think like I could have it could have been like theater or performance art or any it could have been anything yeah um But the fact that I was always kind of like so fascinated with machines and cameras and like taking things apart or understanding how something worked, I think it always kind of kept me in the tech space. And when I got Mm. um, when I got to Brown, it was pretty clear that they handled, you know, film and moving images in a very particular way there. It was a really, you know, it was a program that was steeped in film theory. Mm. Um, And when you were, you know, whatever, 17, 18, and you look in the course catalog, and it says filmmaking, it underneath it would say, see semiotics, which is really about the study of signs and symbols. Oh, my god! And so I think that something about that experience, when yeah. I was 18, you could never get away with this now. <laughs> something about that experience of like being like, oh, coming and thinking you're interested in film, but instead having, you know, two to three years where you're really first sort of steeped in film as a language of signs and meanings. Mm. Um, I think it really kind of put me on a path to 
be really open-minded about how I expressed my ideas. So in some ways, there's a nomadic quality to it. You know, like I have very much moved with the different media that kind of characterized what artists were doing at the at particular time. So and I kind of started out with film and video because that was sort of, that was where a lot of people were working at the time. That's right. And then as things became more computer-based, I was sort of like, oh, interesting. And <laughs> I mean, this makes me sound a lot more like a chameleon than I probably am. But um, <laughs> that's the way that I explain it now in retrospect. So it, that makes more sense then, because after your MFA, you had this academic career teaching electronic arts and integrated arts at Bard uh, and actually becoming chair of that department but you were also making your own art while you were teaching. You you did pieces that were exhibited at the Whitney and at the New Museum of Contemporary Art. And what was interesting, I, I read one of uh, the comments about your work said it often focuses on technology and obsolescence, which I think is fascinating. Oh, I love that. Uh, tell us more about that period of your of your work, and also what drew you to an academic career at first. I think the thing that was most interesting about that period for me in retrospect is that, you know, theoretically, that was really supposed to work, you know, like to be an artist and to be teaching and mm -hmm. to be, you know, helping other people make art. Like, I kind of thought that that was going to be it, that yeah. I would just do that because there's certainly a model yeah. of artists who work in academia and supplement their studio practice, you know, with engaging conversation and, you know, all kinds of things from, from students. And so I was pretty surprised when I just, when I began to feel a little bit anxious and a little bit, mm. you know, not super challenged by what, by what I was doing. Mm. And I originally, I, you know, after living in Chicago for a while, I moved to New York and I went to Bard primarily to help them start their digital kind of electronic media and digital arts program. So it was very much a traditional film department, which, you know, mm -hmm. as you know, was sort of where I, what I studied right. that was trying to figure out, like, how do we propel ourselves into, you know, what's happening now with technology? And that was a very particular problem. I really felt like I wanted to help them solve and I could help them solve. Um, and I liked their openness to just having me come in and like do what I wanted to do and to work with the group of artists that were there was really great and important to me. So um, in some ways I loved that challenge and I think it really set me up to almost see my professional career as a, as something that was about challenges, right? Was about like, mm -hmm. oh, what can you go to a certain place and help them discover or help them do? Mm -hmm. um, and thinking about that very specifically in terms of how people learn or how they think about the technology um, and the or the machines or their relationship to the world around them. Well, and it certainly seems like its own unique set of challenges to start a program somewhere versus going into a program, was that illuminating for you? Was that sort of the first time that you had done something like that? Yeah, definitely. It wasn't something that I had done before. And I think in some ways that also really sort of set me up to be like, oh, is this, you know, to be not worried about coming in, stepping in and doing something for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, so part of that, 
you know, as I said, I grew up in a community of artists. My dad's an artist. My mom's a journalist. So to come into a community, you know, Bard College has this great history of being really, really strong in the arts. So mm-hmm. kind of go- going, coming to this community that was close enough to New York City that you like could still see culture and real people and um, be in this small community of artists was really exciting and interesting to me. Mm. Um, but I was pretty, I was pretty young. And the longer I stayed, the more I began to notice that, you know, I didn't really care that I was young, younger than, you know, a lot of the people when I first got there. But as I got a little bit older, I was like, oh, wow, I saw this weird thing happening, which is that people seemed to feel as if they couldn't leave. And that really worried me mm-hmm. that if I like hung out for longer, even though I was, you know, tenured, I was just like, you, if it looks as if you stay too long, people begin to feel a bit, you know, outdated, or they feel like they can't go somewhere else. And that mm. really kind of scared me and made me think like, oh, okay, let's not fossilize, you know, or anything. Right. Um, and then also, I felt like, you know, technology was changing. And I was at a point mm. where I am, you know, like most people, super, you know, self-taught, have like learned a lot of stuff on my own or from other artists or, you know, from, you know, from people, but I was reaching a point, particularly when it came to like code and computation stuff, where I was like, Mm -hmm. not quite getting it and not where I, not kind of where I wanted to be. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist with Christina Wallace and Kate Scott Campbell. So, Leah, in 2006, you went back to school and got a second master's, this time at NYU, in game and interactive media design. So why the pivot? And, and perhaps as interesting to us, why get a second degree? What did formal education give you in that shift that you couldn't get by going it alone? You know, it's interesting, and I talk to people a lot about this, um, you know, when it comes to thinking about, you know, what your career is and what you want to do next. For me, you know, as I was realizing getting a little antsy in my current position and sort of feeling like I wanted some new challenges, I had a few different, you know, kind of scenarios set up. One was just to kind of work on creative projects and just kind of wing it. And the other was like maybe to go to school and be a bit more kind of focused hmm. on what it was I wanted to know, which is a, a bit more directional than I have been in the past. Interesting. Um, so... 
so I was really lucky, and when I applied to NYU and was looking specifically at their interactive telecommunications program, I just, you know, was really clear about, hi, I'm an artist, I want to come to this program, I've been out in the professional world, can you help me? And they, <laughs> you know, they were great about bringing me there and, you know, covering my tuition and it made a huge difference that they could sort of see me for who I was mm-hmm. and and help me get there. So I took two years um, to go back to being a student and make a lot of mistakes. And the interesting thing for me was that I was not as interested in just kind of straight coding mm-hmm. as I thought I would be. Like I thought I would go, I'd like beef up my code and then I would just go back to be make to doing like interactive installations and that kind of thing. And I'd really like was the actual mechanics of it I was not that interested in and neither was I super talented I was like pretty good for an artist but like when you really (laughs) kind of get into a program like that you know it gets pretty clear like like who's like really good and I was like oh wow I'm not like awesome at this stuff like I'm good I'm okay but like I'm not like awesome and I don't love it, like love mm-hmm. it, love it. Mm-hmm. So I spent my sort of second semester of my first year going like, well, this is what I came to do, right? Is to figure out what I want to do next and what is going to be interesting to me. And that was sort of when I switched and I started doing more game design. You know, I started doing like wearable technologies. Like I started thinking more, less about the code specifically and more about like what it could, you know, kind of get me, if that makes sense. Totally. totally. So what's so interesting is, so you're what we call a human Venn diagram on our show, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> where you've, you've successfully integrated your skills into your work. And what I find fascinating in your story about the NYU admissions folks is that they recognized that mm-hmm. and wanted to support that. And I know a lot of our listeners often ask, like, how do we effectively tell our story or integrate into organizations or companies or academic programs when we have these intersectional interests like or maybe i guess conversely how do companies stay open-minded or organizations stay open-minded to people like you and like us that have multiple interests instead of narrowly defining like oh we need a designer how do you tell that story of all the pieces of you no, it's it's really interesting, and I, I think what's so important is being able to tell that story in some way, and I think um, part of what I found to be, you know, really important is kind of researching the ecosystem that you're interested in mm-hmm. um, and finding particular people who you think will be receptive or are receptive. And that was a kind of a key piece of information that someone gave me just as I was leaving NYU. You know, they said, listen, the person who's going to give you a job is going to be someone who can see the benefits of the different things that you've done. So you want to find a place, you know, whether that's a person or whether that's an organization, like you want to find that place that has that combination of things that you're, that you're interested in. And, that was just like this kind of great information for me. And one of the other things that they said was that, you know, a lot of the schools that do this design and technology work, you know, your specific school is known for having people who do big thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a plus that you have. You're coming out of a program where people are going to expect and look to you to be thinking widely. And, you know, honestly, to date, that had not been 
a plus. I didn't realize that that was the fact that I can think expansively like that. I didn't realize that that was like a huge, one of my huge benefits, like what I brought to the table. Mm, Yeah. And when you're in a creative environment, everyone is bringing that. But when you leave a distinctly creative environment and you go out into a different kind of um, community or workforce, then that thing that you brought from your homeland becomes really, really important. I love that, Leah. We've talked about that on our show before in in the context of having a skill that you just kind of take for granted or sometimes apologize for. And then as soon as someone labels it as a benefit, it somehow it, it validates it. And you think, oh, it's this mind shift, right? Of this is something that is a really great skill to have. So I love that you got that vote of confidence in that way at NYU. No, and it was terrific because I specifically talked to a recruiter, you mm. know, and I showed her my CV and I just was like, so what would you hire me for? And just seeing my, you know, my skill set through someone else's eyes really helped me to talk about my work and what I was able to do differently. And then also, you know, just I've also been really lucky. I've always I've found people who have been able to see me and sort of see what I was able to do. And then I've also worked on these projects that were, you know, like they were in startup mode, whether, you know, officially or unofficially. (laughs) And there's something about that kind of moment, I think, too, where people are willing to take more risks. They're, you know, they're thinking very broadly. And they, when people are consciously building a team, I think, you're in a very unique, you know, position. Well, so I've really lucked into that, into that particular timing. So, you know, several with several projects now. Yeah. You also have the confidence to ask a question like, what would you hire me for? It it sounds like after you finished NYU, you then joined an organization called Institute of Play, which sounds like a pretty fun place to be. What was your focus there? Did you continue to make art or did you keep it in your life after this shift into game design and education? Tell us about your work at Institute of Play. Sure. Institute of Play um, is really interesting, and they're just celebrating their 10-year anniversary. Oh, wow. Um, And the big project that they were working on um, when I first arrived was um, starting a a New York City public school that would eventually go from 6th to 12th grade with a focus on play, systems thinking, and really specifically thinking about, you know, how you can design and redesign the learning experience. So thinking about the teacher as a designer, thinking about the student as a designer, and then thinking about all of the elements that make a successful game as being the elements that are identical to making a successful learning experience. So mm-hmm. it was like like high concept stuff, um, <laughs> but, but it was going to end up being implemented as a regular New York City public school. And I was just really fascinated after all of the work that I'd been doing, you know, designing games and collaborating on game, on game projects in graduate school. I was really fascinated how these things that I was learning and just the act of learning and designing a learning experience for someone else might interact my first role was as was as community catalyst on the mm-hmm. project team that was developing the new the new school 
So what's fascinating to me is you've been in education in one way or another for over two decades at this point, whether it was higher ed at Bard or informal you know, education with Girls Who Code or even formal education with the school at Institute of Play. What's the biggest misunderstanding about education, whether the art side or the STEM side, because you've seen both, that you think you could clear up or you wish you could clear up once and for all? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, I think the biggest misconception is that how you learn is not important, that people can learn and and acquire knowledge and, you know, get the kind of confidence that they need anywhere. And mm-hmm. I mean, what I really, really see, particularly with Girls Who Code, is it just that that context really matters. You know, if you're not exposed to these ideas you know, any complex set of ideas in a way that relates to you, that is appealing to you, that is, you know, well-designed, then you're not going to understand them. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why the gender gap in computing is getting worse. You know, this is one of the reasons why we really, you know, talk about, you know, not just the gender gap, but we also talk about like an opportunity gap and an achievement gap, because Mm -hmm. so many people are really, they're underrated. People aren't thinking about, you know, kind of how to design an education or an experience so that it's going to be accessible to more people. And Mm -hmm. we really find that, you know, girls specifically, you know, underrepresented minority groups really, really get left out of the picture. So whether it's that there's a lack of positive role models, whether you find out about the really strong history of women, of African-American women, of Latinas, of Asian women in, you know, STEM, in computer science, whether you kind of have this sense that there are really talented, interesting people who look like you, who've gone before you, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's being delivered to you in a way that's appealing and interesting and kind of has uh, has a focus that makes sense to you. Like all of these things really, really matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been my biggest, you know, sort of my biggest lesson is that, you know, when you dig into that real data behind, you know, something like a massively online learning community, mm-hmm. you really see that the same people who did well in college teaching themselves are the people mm-hmm. who do well, you know, when it comes to a MOOC or something like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, that's one of the things that I, I, I still really see and really, you know, believe in that we really need targeted programs that are designed inclusively with, you know, with multiple types of people um, Mm -hmm. in mind, whether it's um, how you learn or the context um, or what you're going to actually do with the things that you've, the things that you've learned. And that's been um, a great lesson for me. And one of the really amazing things about working specifically with the curriculum team at Girls Who Code is really seeing, you know, how thoughtful they are about designing, you know, their approach to teaching girls computer science and computational thinking. I think you're Absolutely. so right. The, the user interface yes. of education, I think, is, is totally forgotten in sort of the classic school model. And that's effectively what you're, you know, discussing the experience, this visibility of people who came before you who look like you, the community that you're learning in, even just like the look and feel of the classroom or the the learning environment. Um, I think that entire piece has been 
ignored in favor of like curriculum redesign and i'm all for great curriculum but you also have to think about that entire experience and i think at bridge up stem we felt the same thing of like the community of learners the uh, visibility into career paths ahead of them and the visibility behind them in the people who came before them that looked like them and represented them and they are part of a bigger thing and they are welcome there. That that was just as important as are we doing MacBooks or PCs? Are we teaching Python or Ruby? You know, all, all of the ways that we introduce algorithms, etc. No, that's exactly it. You really have to have that deeper understanding and you have to be able to explain something in your own words and have it make sense in your own world. And I think, you know, when I look back on how I, you know, kind of got involved with code, how I got involved with computational, you know, kind of making there were several times where I sat in on computer science classes or like got books or, and I was just like, why is this not making sense to me? You know, and it was just like not presented in a way that made, that, that made sense to me. It really took me, you know, I was like, I've taught myself so many things. Why is this not working? Mm -hmm, And it mm -hmm. was really, it was a big moment for me to just be like, okay, you can't teach yourself everything. Some things like you are going to have to learn in a much more traditional way. And so one of the things that I love is just seeing girls who like after seven weeks of working with girls who code seeing what their projects look like seeing like how deep and like how confident their understanding is from you know having this experience um you know that is really so well intentioned and well designed and you know that's what i love about you know going into girls who code clubs you know you know, seeing the kinds of projects that that girls are making, and then and really sort of seeing this whole process from beginning to end, sort of how the curriculum is designed, and then seeing what it looks like kind of in in action, and then beginning to get this sort of sense of like what what girls will do next now that they now that they've sort of had this had this exposure. I love Leah hearing about your own a little bit about your own educational experience and that light bulb that you had about you might need to learn this in a different way and you know thinking about the empathy that that gives you to working with these girls and in this program I'm curious about another time where you've felt limited in your education or your career and how did you overcome it Oh that's a great and hard question. It is. It's a um, big question. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I do, I do think that when I was sort of first transitioning from more kind of traditional moving image work into more computer-based work, mm-hmm. um, I really had a hard time trying to understand um, how I could just kind of trust myself to dive into a completely new, you know, process, Mm. Um, particularly, you know, when you have, you know, shown work or, you know, exhibited in a particular medium, it's very hard to then say like, oh, you know what, I'm going to skip over to this thing called the internet. And, you know, (laughs) and no, I don't quite know what it means yet, but it's actually really interesting to me. So I think, you know, it's, that's always been really hard, I think is just, you know, is professionally and creatively is trying to, um, pushing on to do to do new things. And one of the things I've I've always done is I've looked for, you know, other people who are doing something that I might be interested in. I'm very kind of responsive in that way. Like I look for like precedents, I look for work, I look for 
projects. I look for books. Like I look for things out in the world to help me find my way a bit. Um, and I also really talk to people. You know, mm. if I can particularly, you know, find a woman or another person of color or someone else who's queer who's like doing this work, I'll just be like, um, "Hi, how are you doing that?" <laughs> or like, "Let me ask you fifty questions," um, uh, because it it's it can be really helpful, like just to ask someone, like, "How'd you get where you are?" and to get kind of a sense of what some of those particular pathways um, have been. Not that you have to do the exact same thing, but I found that along the way. Um, those sort of strategic coffees and, you know, drinks with people and conversations have really, have really been super helpful. Um, and whenever I can, if I, you know, meet an artist who's like teaching and is like thinking like, I don't know if this is what I want to do. I immediately say like, there's so much you can do. Don't like, don't worry about it. Like, you, you know, you don't have to do anything. You know, like I really try to like <laughs> preach that like, you know, particularly I think, you know, people with creative backgrounds can really be, you know, everywhere. And it's really important that we are actually everywhere. Here, here. I love I it. I love that. So somehow we are at the end of the time for the formal interview portion, and it's time to move on to what we like to call the lightning round. So the lightning round is a quick and easy series of questions. You didn't see these ahead of time. They're a little bit silly. They're a little bit fun. Uh, we just want the first answer that comes to mind. No need to explain it or defend it. And we will do our best not to answer follow-up questions. Awesome. Here we go. Question number one. Everyone always has a hard time with this one, but I believe in you. What are you reading right now? I am reading a multicultural lesbian literary journal that is historicizing the Michigan Women's Music Festival. It is fascinating. Wow. Oh, what's it called? Wow. Uh, it's called Sinister Wisdom is the journal, and this is a special issue about the Mich Michigan Women's Festival, which just concluded after many decades of making music in the woods that's, i never that's went amazing. But i was, I'm I was from fascinated Michigan. by it all i have never heard of this i i, yeah. I have yeah. i heard that it had had ended and i'm i'm sure that's a fantastic read it's awesome question two leah other than mm -hmm. art technology and education what else is in your personal venn diagram probably design is something i'm pretty fascinated by and organizational behavior is big Ooh. on my list of obsessions. Nice. Oh, I love okay, it. Okay, quick question three. What is the title of your future TED Talk? Because we know you're going to have one at some point. Future TED Talk. Or it could be a, a general topic. It is probably something about creative artists being kind of everywhere. I think there's a big appreciation for design and design thinking right now. I'm all for it. But then I think there's a particular role for those of us who like make things that, you know, aren't always functional. So maybe it's something about, about that. I love, I love it. That. I, I think would... that's a great title. Artists are everywhere. Yeah. I've totally listened to that TED talk. <laughs> okay. Question four. What is one thing that most people don't know about you, or it takes a little time to learn about you, that you would like to share to all of our listeners worldwide? It's a tough question. <laughs> I used to play the violin, but the whole time I was playing the violin, I really wanted to be playing the viola. Ooh. Leah, I know I'm not supposed yeah. to chime in in yeah. the lightning round, but I have that same experience. <laughs> 
Really? The viola just sounded so rich. Yes. Not that I, I played the violin for a long time. Yes. And odd. Yes. Yeah. Honestly, I you were playing like the violin. <laughs> <laughs> well, the because yeah. like, the violin is like the soprano section. They always get the best melodies. They always uh, get like <laughs> the violins are the altos. No soprano that I've ever met has said, you know what? I really wish I was an alto. I don't know. Yeah, altos are cool. It was, it's too high pressure. But... <laughs> I was in a, I was in a I was in like a, an orchestra that was like all kids. So it was you know it was like if you were playing the violin, you had to deal with. Yeah, you know what section you were That's in. That's right. Learning the solos, there were like four and sections. The solos, they were just yeah. They had the They're weird noises they made. <laughs> they were like much less pressure. Yes, they're like yeah. the stringed instrument version of the oboe. I love the oboe as well. So it's true. like this mellow. So true. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> okay, final question. You're doing so great, Leah. I better say, this might be the hardest question of the list. That's true. Shout out for a woman who's doing awesome things in education. And uh, we know it's impossible to pick one woman. So just someone you might just want to give a little extra love to today. Oh, that's that is easy because um, we have such an awesome team at Girls Who Code. (laughs) So I would say the women driving and changing our curriculum and education team i'll call them the women um it's all women they're doing they're doing really strong work so it's it's great to formally say sarah megan diane Emily. all you guys are doing great work thank you that's so sweet i love it love it so much well done you survived the lightning round as everyone has so far but i still think it deserves congratulations uh thank you so much for being on our show tonight we we have just had such a blast getting to know you and hearing about your story which is so perfect for all of the themes that we love to talk about here at the limit does not exist absolutely i'm so glad thanks so much for having me thanks leah bye-bye bye Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. 
Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love at first listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 